0: Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's good to be with you. My name is Gary Harvat. I'm the Vice President of Client Success at QMC, and I am joined by my esteemed, albeit 64, 63 pounds lighter, Chuck.
1: For those yeah. of
0: you that last saw Chuck on our last webinar, he was 63 pounds heavier. So great job, Chuck. Um, how you've done it is beyond me, but good for you. You look like a different man from what we see on the the previous pictures. So thanks, we're glad you're here. And Chuck's uh, Senior Director of our Compliance Department. And uh, as some of you may know, there have been a number of new items that have come to uh, the radar screen. And we really felt to try to communicate this to as many as possible, uh, to just have a uh, brief webinar, uh, maybe not so much brief, but have a webinar about some of the things that are happening, including ET3, Uh, the CARE stimulus reporting, uh, Medicare prior auth, which has some big changes to it that affect the the nation, and accelerated an advanced payment program, plus Chuck's got a couple other things in his bag of tricks. Uh, Chuck's going to do the majority of the heavy lifting today. So without any further ado, my esteemed lightweight, lightweight colleague Chuck Humphrey Chuck
1: yes thanks Gary uh he likes to poke fun at me and we, we do that all the time so uh, uh believe me folks I take no offense because I give it back that's for sure <laughs> uh, yeah so look thank you um just one quick housekeeping duty I will mention also is um this is allergy season for me, so I just took a hit of albuterol, so if I do cough every now and then, I'll apologize. I have a four-cup water bottle here, which every now and then I may take, so I'll apologize up front. Actually, I'm going to switch it up, Gary. I'm going to start out with the HHS stimulus reporting, and the reason is is because that has the lion's share of the detail, So, uh, um, and I just want to say at the outset, I'm going to say this phrase because you're going to hear me say it probably a dozen times over the next few minutes. Prevent, prepare for, and respond to the coronavirus. This is the mantra, okay? Um, And I also want to say that all we talk about today is, we've used this word over and over, and not in relation to my water bottle, but it's fluid, okay? So, as I have since March, when we began having a lot of webinars talking about coronavirus and COVID-19 response and those kind of things, um, I may mention that what I say today, two minutes later, we may have another webinar and tell you something has changed. And that's really been the way things have gone over the past six months. Um, I, I, you know, Gary, I've done this EMS for 34 years and I've done ambulance billing, reimbursement, consulting, whatever you want to call it. For the last 23 years, and I must tell you, at no time in my career have things been this crazy. It's just been changing every other minute. But we, um, some things came across our inbox over the last several days that we thought we really wanted to get together with you all and just bring you up to an update. So, what we know now is what we know now, and we'll see what happens later on. So. HHS stimulus reporting, so the the reporting portal, I just want to make mention, will open this Thursday, October 1st. Can't believe we're already through September, and here we are heading into the last quarter of the year, but um, this Thursday, the HHS Stimulus Cares Act funds, the Provider Relief Fund, you'll hear me refer to PRF, uh, opens this Thursday, okay? So Everyone who has received over $10,000 aggregate. Now, why do I say aggregate? If you're on the call and part of your, and this is mostly applies to many of our municipal clients, you have more than one entity receiving Medicare dollars. It may not just be the ambulance. It could be that you have a community health center or some other like entity that operates under your, corporate umbrella or the tax ID number umbrella. Okay. Cause that's really where this all starts at your TIN or your tax identification number. You all may also refer to it as an EIN. And in some cases, private ownership, it may be a social security number of the owner. Um, but, but nonetheless, um, if you have received over 10,000, now that has changed. You may remember Uh, about two, three months ago, we had a webinar. It talked about a much higher amount for reporting. Um, A few weeks ago, that change and it became 10,000. Okay. So if you receive that in the aggregate, then you must report. All right. And you must report within the next 45 days of the end of the calendar year. So it begins October 1st. And then once we reach the end of the year, you'll have to February 15th. And that for all expenditures of dollars received in this 2020 calendar year. So if you have expended all of what you received already, you've spent it all, again, to prevent, prepare for, and respond to this pandemic, then you can file one report between October 1st, and February 15th, and you will do that online, okay? And that link is not yet out but it will be, so watch for that. Um, Then you can file a single report and you're done, okay? But if you have not expended all your funding by the end of the year, or if you're still waiting for the second tranche or the second round of funding, then what you spend next year, you'll have to do a separate report for, and you will have through July 31st to file that report. Okay, so those are two very significant dates. And I want to let you know that this only includes the Provider Relief Fund part of the CARES. Now, you will remember there was the HRSA Uninsured Patient Payment Program. Those monies do not apply to this reporting. So it would be that surprise, and I say surprise because it did surprise many of us in April when that first round came, Or the second round, if you applied for it and you were eligible for it and you received, those would be the funds that we were talking about. Now, recipients will report that usage of the PRF funds in two general areas, okay? One is healthcare-related expenses, and that is two parts. General and administrative spending and healthcare related operating expenses, okay? So there are two elements to that and hold the line because I will fill you in on what that means from there. Um, and also it's important to know that this will also include your reporting of potentially lost revenue. So first they expect that it would have expended on stuff directly related to coronavirus and then there's also a carve out for possible loss revenues But the caution is, is that you can't have expended and then report on anything that padded your pocket. So just want to make sure, and we push this ad nauseum throughout all of our communication, that you had to keep good records and you couldn't benefit from this. So it has to be offset. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So what I'm going to do next, Gary, is I'm going to go through what we know right now are the data elements that reporting entities are going to have to report. Now this may get a little dull, but I think it's important for all of you listening to understand what's gonna be expected. So you can start getting your mindset around, what do I have to pull? What documentation do I have to look at? And then once you get on, it will prompt you on the site based on how much money you have received. Because if you have received uh, more than um, $500,000, then you will have to do more detailed reporting and the system will prompt you. So if you're between 10000 ninety-nine nine hundred ninety-nine thousand and dollars then you'll have one kind of general overview reporting. If you're above that uh, 499, 999 mark above 500 or more, then you'll have more detail. So it's even more important for those of you are in that uh, category to listen up. So the first thing you're gonna have to report are your data elements. So you're gonna have to report your uh, tax ID number. And that includes if you have subsidiary tax ID numbers that fall under that corporate umbrella. So let's say you're a hospital system with ownership in an ambulance service that has its own sub TIN, you will report everything under the umbrella, unless unless one of those sub TINs received targeted dollars for a specific expenditure. And there were those carve outs that some organizations did receive. So if that is the case, then you will need to report separately, the targeted by that separate TIN. I think for most of our EMS clients, that probably is not in place. But again, if you're part of a larger organization, that could be that it applies over to other business uh, entities. Of course, you'll have to report your national provider identifier. Uh, Make sure you pull that out. You will have to report what your fiscal year end date is. Okay, so if you're on calendar year or if you're on fiscal year, like a July to June, that type of thing, you'll have to state that classification. And then you'll also have to report your tax classification. Now, I point this out and stop here. One of the things in the previous online uh, enrollments that we ran into, second was with the second tranche and then also with the uninsured patient payment program, is a lot of people didn't understand what their classification is. Hopefully by now you know, but if not, make sure you see your finance department, your administrative people to understand. So your choices are sole proprietor, limited liability corporation, LLC, partnership, C-corps, S-corps, trusts and estates, and then finally tax exempt organizations or entities, which is where your municipals, many of them fall because you don't file tax reports. Okay. Uh, that caused some stress and also caused some stress because the websites didn't have that classification when they first rolled that out back uh, in April and May. So want to make sure to point that out. Hopefully that is uh, resolved. Second part of that, then, in your data elements, will be expenses attributable to coronavirus, not reimbursed by other sources. So, as you begin to report, you're going to have to report expenses that were attributed and incurred from treating and uh, a confirmed or suspected COVID patient. You'll break that out. Uh, expenses preparing for. So how, you know, you bought PPE, you bought decon agents, you bought decon machines, whatever the case. And then finally maintaining healthcare delivery capacity, which again is a little bit gray for ambulance. I think that's more pertaining to the provider side of the healthcare institution, but that can be broadly um, broadly uh, defined. And then again, um, you will have to report all of this net of other reimbursed sources. So what we're talking about is you're receiving the CARES Act money, expending that on things that were related to the coronavirus, breaking out for now your payments that you receive from your just your regular activity. Insurance payments, patient payments, you know any amounts received from federal, state, or, or local governments. And then again, in aggregate categories, of these two um, sources. G&A expenses, general administrative, which is an accounting term you should be, uh, many of you should be familiar with, and then quote unquote other healthcare related expenses. Okay, so any expenses incurred over and above what's being reimbursed by other sources. So again, remember we cautioned you the double dip. If you got uh, monies from any other source to support your operations, in this particular reporting, you'll be reporting on care stimulus, money, SANS, any of that other uh, dollars that came in. Okay. So let's look at what g is defined as. How are we doing so far, Gary? Good?
0: Doing well. Thank you.
1: Okay. So uh, G&A includes and reporting in a lump as opposed to breaking out if you have more than $500,000 received. Mortgage and rent for a facility related to COVID, probably not any ambulance thing, okay? Insurance relative to operations, that includes property insurance, malpractice, business insurance, and that's if you kicked up coverage for some reason because of coronavirus, that's a potential, okay? This is a big one that will apply to uh, um, coronavirus for EMS. Uh, Personnel, workforce related and paid, again, I'll say it again, to prevent, prepare for, and respond to coronavirus during this reporting period, okay? Um, and that can include, and they're breaking this out, and they're gonna ask you for these individual, if you are over that threshold, workforce training, staffing, temp employees, or contract uh, payroll employees. Let's say you were um, in a very hot area initially, and you had a number of people go down that couldn't work because they had to be quarantined for infection. Maybe you had to bring in some outside uh, per diem or contract people. If that's the case, then you account for that here. Overhead for employees in any kind of sense. Um, And any kind of uh, personnel payments, such as, um, you know, you had to increase salaries for someone because they took on extra duties. However, just remember that, and then we talked about this early on, um, salary increases could not be... Uh, given to anybody at the executive level two, which would be anybody who makes on their normal salary, 197,300 plus per year. Um, So just keep that in mind. Hopefully that wasn't something that you did in practice. Um, And then for purposes of salary limitation, we uh, call your attention to the fact that fringe benefits would be included. So for example, if you had individuals that worked a lot of overtime during the initial offset or during a spike, and they incurred additional fringe benefits that are tied to their working hours, then obviously you gotta break that out, okay? Um, Limitations apply to the rate of pay charged to the PRF uh, or other HHS awards. If that were due or not due to coronavirus, you need to make sure that you list that. And then uh, also any organization receiving PRF may actually pay an individual salary in an amount excess of the salary cap with any non-federal funds. So they're making a point to say, it didn't matter if you gave a guy a raise, just don't give him a raise that you use stimulus money to give him the raise for. And of course, in your reporting, be careful that you're noting that because that should not have happened. Um, Fringe benefits included, of course, and that includes any type of hazard pay, because I know there were some hazard pay situations. Uh, Travel reimbursement, going back and forth to other places to work Um, you know, outstations where there was a shortage maybe and you reimburse someone from traveling from their normal base of operations to uh, a place where they had to go to fill in um, employee health insurance, those kind of things. Next category is lease payments. Any new equipment that you may have leased or a software lease if you had to kick up your EHR. Maybe you bought some kind of new rugged tablets that were disinfected, you know, uh, capable. And I know there was some Uh, some new products on the market to cover that. Um, Utilities and operations, any kind of lighting changes, uh, cooling and ventilation, maybe you did some kind of HVAC filters, that would be included. Cleaning costs. Uh, I know many places, we did it here at QMC, we did deep cleans, had people come in, you know, and so um, those kind of things obviously would be included. And any other additional third-party vendor services, that may not be been included in personnel. So not direct personnel, but vendor type situations would all be included in that G&A bucket, okay? So you'd be doing combined reporting based on how the system prompts you when you log in. Um, if you're below that $500,000 threshold, if you're above, you're gonna have to break that out in item and item So that may take you some time. You know, again, we caution that don't wait until February 14th, you know, at four o'clock at the afternoon to start this process. I would suggest you log on, get in in October uh, as the government gets guidance, and then go from there. Um, now, healthcare-related expenses, next major category. Let's jump over. Okay, take a breath, and here we go. Within this category, supplies, obviously, no brainer. Any expenses paid for the purchase of supplies used to again prevent, prepare for, or respond to the coronavirus including but not limited to PPE, hand sanitizer, supplies for screening patients or screening your employees. You know, that could be uh, included. Equipment, okay? Expenses paid for purchase of equipment used to prevent, prepare, or respond to. Ventilators. Update the HVAC systems. Again, that don't fall over in the leasing. That would fall here in the healthcare related or anything broaden um, <clears throat> your equipment budget uh, to... Uh, and I'm sure many of your budgets balloon, that's for sure. They mention IT here, information technology, okay? Excuse me, any kind of expenses that you broaden for coronavirus response, interoperability uh, systems to expand, or preserve care delivery uh, in, you know, connecting with your hospital. So there was some kind of HL7 reporting back and forth. Uh, maybe you had additional licensing fees for people who went and worked from home in your, um, in, you know, in your operations, uh, uh, admins, um, uh, supervisory, whatever the case may be that weren't directly street related. Um, any kind of telehealth infrastructure, maybe you connected with um, your local, um, uh, doctors and healthcare providers, and you set up a healthcare uh, telehealth uh, infrastructure network, okay, increase bandwidth in order to cover those interactions, or any kind of teleworking at all. Um, facility costs that were healthcare related, uh, expenses paid uh, to lease or purchase permanent or temporary structures. Maybe you set up some Tent structures within your outside your stations, or uh, maybe again in conjunction with your healthcare systems, you had to modify your facilities. I know uh, many of the services I've talked to put up some plexiglass uh, separators, like in their charting area, where you know you go into your booth, and even beyond what we've had for privacy, now there are you know plexiglass or plastic coverings, those kind of things. Uh, the barriers are a really good example. Um, and then, of course, catch all other healthcare related expenses and any other actual expenses not previously captured in any of the other categories. So that's a pretty long list, but I think you get the picture of the kind of detail that it will prompt you for, or those of you that are aggregating what you have to include. And I would uh, suggest as I hope you've done since day one, keeping good records of all those expenditures, all those income and how that's all been expended. Okay, yeah. yes. So
0: um, I'm glad you, you, you've mentioned that because you know a question that we have been asked time and time again is about are we prone to audits as a result of accepting these dollars? And I, I know initially we just told everybody to make sure you're keeping good records so you can pull them out a day, a week, or a couple of years down the road. Uh, do you have any additional information on that? Where we think we're going? I know, you, I know, we talked about this just a couple of days ago, but I think it's important to share.
1: Well, I, I we're already seeing some of the audits start back up that were suspended before coronavirus. Your typical cert audits, you know, program integrity, all of that is word back up. As far as auditing for this, uh, my my gut, anything I reads and my gut tells me that they're going to wait and see how this reporting process goes. You know, they certainly have a laundry list of everyone who've received dollars. Who's looking like their reporting is in tow, and who's looking like it's outside the lines. So as much detail as you, when when they ask for a category, make sure it's as close to the hip as you can possibly get. Um, And anything at fault, you can rest assured that they've already developed, and we don't know this, but I know based on, our experience in the industry, your and mine, and and those of us that follow this as billing nerds, um, we certainly know that there are um, metrics that they keep in judging claim payments, expenditures, you know, just think about those of you that get FEMA money or state grants, what that reporting process is, what that auditing process is after the fact, and it's going to fall in line with what We've been used to with the twists. Of course, none of us can predict totally what this process is going to look like because we've never experienced this before. But we have experienced natural disaster, um, you know, FEMA grants. We've experienced uh, special grants for certain uh, events that have happened down through time. So look for it to be that way. But I think they'll wait and see a little bit how this first round of Once they start getting the data in from the reporting process, and if they don't think everyone's falling in line too well, then I think they'll set boots on the ground and somebody will be knocking on your door. And I see boots on the ground. That could be an email that you receive and they want to see more, you know, they want to see your records. They want to see your files, uh, upload this, whatever the case may be. But but I think it's a given, you know, remember, this is $50 billion. It's not pennies. So somebody's going to ask for an accounting at some point for certain.
0: Great. I encourage our listeners to please ask questions. Uh, so far, none, Chuck. So feel free All to right. continue, but drop them in any time, folks.
1: Yes, please. So next major category is reporting lost revenues attributed to coronavirus. Now this is important. They're going to want you to do a calendar year comparison from 2019 to 2020, and it's also important that you report that. And they're saying net of uncollectible patient service revenue recognizes bad debt. You're going to have a period later on, and I'll cover that, uh, where you will recognize bad debt. But for now, they're looking for either total revenue due to coronavirus from the coronavirus affected by, offset by your drop in Run volume. Your, you know, suddenly nursing homes aren't sending their patients out for routine uh, things that you know you're doing those kind of things, or your net charges. So they're allowing for net charges versus actual revenue, especially if you're on an accrual type of accounting uh, system, and or if you had maybe delay in billing. So they're allowing for the fact that you may not have realized all your net revenue, but they're going to tie that back to this period of the public health emergency that we've experienced up until now. Um, So you'll be reporting this in your payer mix categories, 2019 versus 2020, okay? And then we're gonna break it out by Medicare Part A and B. Of course, A for hospitals, B for um, those that aren't connected to that side of the, the equation. Either actual revenue or net charges that were received from either and for patient care in that calendar year. How did it dip and and is it attributable to coronavirus? Medicare Part C breakout, that's for your Medicare Advantage, Medicare HMOs and PPOs. Medicaid, again, actual revenues or net charges received from Medicaid and also from the Children's Health Insurance Program, we call it the CHIP program. Another breakout for commercial insurance, same explanation is above actual revenues, net charges. Self-pay, and these are people that have no insurance. So it wouldn't mean that you're reporting in that bucket um, co-pays paid by patients. You're gonna report co-pays up in the major category buckets um, of Medicare, You know, not, not so much Medicaid, Medicare and commercial insurance. But this is true self-pay, actual revenue, net charge receive from self-paying patients including the uninsured or individuals without insurance who bear, bear a burden for paying for health care them, themselves in that calendar year so again is it is it a insurance um, that pays for health care and you have to weed that out or any other revenue source okay so they're going to want to know those payment levels uh, by that. Now, I see um, Melissa asks a question, we're tax supported. Does lost sales tax tax revenue count toward lost revenue? We're in a tourist area, so our sales tax is down significantly over the last year. Good question. I, yeah, that is a Good great question. question. I don't see sales tax as this kind of revenue. We're talking about healthcare revenue here, Melissa. So I do not believe that that would be, this would be total revenue from healthcare sourcing, okay? Um, So that's a great question. I don't see that. Yes, be careful with that. Remember, it's tied to, Melissa, it's tied to the provider relief fund, CARES expenditure, loss of that type of healthcare revenue. Um, That's tied to the healthcare entities that are underneath your umbrella. That's a challenging question. Great. Yeah, thanks
0: question. for that question, Melissa. Yeah.
1: And then they're going to want to know next, what other assistance did you receive? Did you receive Treasury dollars, SBA dollars from Small Business, um, the Paycheck uh, Protection Program dollars? Excuse me. Remember that's separate from the CARES Provider Relief Fund. So we're only we're talking PRF here. But now they want to know what else did you get? the FEMA CARES Act Fund, directly from FEMA and not from HHS, okay? Um, Did you receive any dollars from the CARES Act for testing? There was a carve out for testing. Any type of local, state or tribal government assistance? They want you to list that. How about any payouts from business insurance, such as insurance and policies that were intended to cover your losses? Now there, Melissa, I think that's where your accounting would come in for your lost sales tax. Is there any kind of uh, municipal insurance and and I'm sorry, I'm not a municipal government person, but is there any kind of protection that you have that you're insured for with losses to that Um, and any other various type of healthcare business um, insurances that would cover interruptions and then any other assistance, total amount of any kind of federal or, coronavirus-related assistance that did not fall under the PRF. You are going to have to uh, report that. Now, um, those calendar year expenses are going to be also broken down by quarter for each of 2019 and 2020. So for some major buckets, the same as we reported above, now we're going to report Um, in a quarterly type of um, carve out and you'll be prompted to report those quarter by quarter amounts.
0: Chuck, I have another question that came up. Uh, Other money received, is that to the ambulance service or the county, even if EMS did not get any direct funds, the county got funds, but we did not get money directly. Would we report
1: that? Yep. it's a great question. If it's PRF, yes. Remember, I started out by saying it was at aggregate reporting. So it's whatever healthcare entity PRF money flowed to your tax ID number or sub tax ID numbers that were directly related to healthcare entities under your umbrella. So the answer to that is yes. Yep. Yep.
0: Thank you for your question.
1: So additional non-financial data is the next major category, okay? And this is broken out by facility, staffing, and patient care, personnel metrics. They want to know your personnel limits, uh, numbers, total personnel by labor category, full-time, part-time, contract, other. Patient metrics, total number of patients, in-person versus telehealth. They want to know. Total number of patients admitted, not an EMS thing, but... Again, would be reported if you're part of a hospital system together with your EMS reporting. Total number of resident patients, again, note that's not a direct EMS, but involved in your reporting metrics. Then they wanna know facility metrics for those of you that are hospital based, total available staff beds for med surge, for critical care and for other beds. So if you're part of a hospital, you will have to report that in the aggregate. They wanna know if you had a change in ownership. This is the tie back to who gets the funds. So if you had a chain, remember we, back in March, we were talking about, maybe you wouldn't get any stimulus money on first round because you were previously owned in 2019 by another entity that reported your Medicare fee for service dollars. So here's where they're gonna verify that. So reporting entities that acquired or divested of any related subsidiaries, uh, subsidiaries must indicate the change in ownership whether it was a related TIN or an acquired or divested, providing the following data points for each relevant TIN. And here are the data points they want to know. The date of the acquisition or divestiture, the TINs that were included in that acquisition or divestiture, the percentage of ownership for that acquisition or divestiture, and did you, you meaning individual and or you as an organization, hold a controlling interest in any of these entities. And then if the reporting entity itself was acquired or divested, um, it should self-report that change of ownership to the HRSA. So that is a requirement. Hopefully you've already done that. If not, I would make sure that you do that. Now, one single carve out to end this discussion. If you have expended more than $750,000 during this period, Um, you may be included in what is referred to as the single audit requirements. I'm not even gonna get into that. I would need uh, our um, uh, CPA, John Kano, to come on this call, probably do a full uh, webinar on that alone. It is an accounting principle, Those of you that are larger organizations, I'm sure you already have some knowledge of that. I'm not going to scratch that service because A, I don't mind admitting, I don't fully understand that requirement and B, um, it's a whole entity all to itself. But do know if that is your level of expenditure, then you need to be aware and make sure I would immediately touch base with my accounting firm or your internal accountant's go over what those requirements may be, and then clarify that. And I'm sure there'll be prompts down the line. Once you put that dollar amount in, if that's part of your experience, it will prompt you to carve out and call for those kind of individual reporting situations. So that is what you can expect come October 1st. Now, again, um, there will be... um, uh, an announcements of where that reporting entity is located, how you can log in, how you can start that process. Uh, I have not seen that yet. If I have missed that, I will say, I apologize right now, I don't believe I did. I think it's to be rolled out on October 1st. And they've been, uh, you know, remember, they missed the deadline for this detail on August 17th and didn't really submit it until about 10 days ago. Um, so we had to crunch quick and review this and I'm reading verbatim on the data elements that they release in that, you know, so there's not been much expansion discussion because nobody really has gotten an eyeball on that thing. Uh, unlike the um, uh, the the other reporting that we've talked about in the past, we kind of got a sneak peek. We haven't seen a sneak peek of this yet, except for what we know are the data elements. So that concludes that discussion. Any other questions on that?
0: Feel free to, to write them up, folks, and we'll submit them.
1: We can, we'll have a discussion at the end too yeah,
0: absolutely and if you have any questions uh as we go through today just put them in there not a problem at all okay chuck i think we're going to uh prior authorization yes
1: yes here. so yes. welcome to what the rest of us have experienced for the past several years all right so let's talk about and we call it rsnat which is repetitive scheduled non-emergency ambulance transports okay so we got to turn back the clock for those of us that have gray on our hair, Mr. Harbat. And um, we go back to 2014, we really go back to 2006, okay? So in 2006, a government report came out noting a large amount of dollars that were expended by the Medicare system that were due largely to two areas, dialysis transports and routine wound care. And the statement was made in that study by the government that they paid out an X number of exorbitant dollars for transports that were not medically necessary. That started the clock ticking. Now it took us until 2014 when finally the number of providers in three states and in specific areas had grown to the level that it got so alarming for the feds that they said, we have got to do a lockdown in this. So the first thing they did in a portion of Texas and a portion of the Philadelphia suburban area, Philadelphia and surrounding counties, including counties in New Jersey, they locked down new enrollments. So they said, we're not even gonna roll non-emergency ambulance providers. And that lasted for a long time. In fact, eventually it went statewide in Pennsylvania and Texas. Before we just got a reprieve on that, just uh, about, oh, I forget, care about a year or so ago, uh, they lifted that, um, that, that uh, inability to get a provider number to bill. But at that point, in 2014, they opened up a demonstration program, which they called the RSNAT Prior Authorization Program. Now, we had seen glimpses of prior authorization many years ago by Palmetto GBA, which at that time was Ohio's Medicare Administrative Contractor. In fact, in those days, we called them carriers. And they had a prior auth program that was actually very successful. Some of us liked it and some of us didn't. I liked it from a billing standpoint because you knew going into to submitting the claim, what was approved and what wasn't based on pre-submitted criteria, which the MAC would, would review and tell us, okay, now for the next several days, and it turned out to be about a 60-day period, uh, we're going to approve those claims. Uh, we'll still watch you, but you're, you're golden as long as things don't change. Well, this program started in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and South Carolina. That's where it seemed to be the largest um, uh, of, of incidences. And immediately, we saw payment rates for these particular sector of the business just drop off the face of the earth. Whole ambulance services that have been in uh, business for years, suddenly had to close their doors, Um, it was quite, and you know, quite frankly, uh, the MACs involved did not get it very right from the beginning, they were denying things they shouldn't, the process was wonky, Um, uh, you know, there were a whole lot of us that have at least half a head of gray hairs over this program right from the start. And then uh, two years later, they expanded the demonstration to Delaware, I always have to look at this site, Delaware, District of Columbia, Maryland, North Carolina, Virginia, and West Virginia. And so for the last four years, providers, non-emergency providers that do regularly scheduled, and what is a regularly scheduled trip? Well, it's an ambulance service that transports a patient three or more round trips over a 10-day period, or the same patient being transported at least once per week, three consecutive weeks or more. Okay, so that is what a repetitive scheduled transport is. And so what this program did was these MACs that that were part of that program were now required to set up a mechanism whereby the ambulance provider, us as the billers, the ambulance provider working together, submitted paperwork and documentation, and that wasn't just a run sheet and a PCS, it was other supporting documentation, including pulling medical records from doctors, from hospitals, from inpatient facilities that proved the medical necessity. And uh, it involved uh, a requirement on the PCS that the PCS had to be signed by the attending physician, um, had to be signed prior to um, the transport and in place. So it could be reviewed. There were a number of different Uh, requirements, and then the max mechanism department team that reviewed those have a certain amount of time that they have to issue their um, determinant as to whether or not these transports would be covered. Now, you took a risk in starting to transport that patient because you could do, let's say in a dialysis patient, you do a week worth of transports, you could have six transports in because you always have a round trip typically and then oops they come back and say no we're not going to pay them and now you're stuck and you could not bill back to the patient okay so there was some risk involved in that Um, that program cut down by exponentially I mean quite frankly on the evaluation reports use and expenditure for this line of the business dropped in the model states by 60 percent And for beneficiaries uh, with ESRD, end-stage renal, and or pressure ulcers, um, it resulted in approximately, are you ready for this, $550 million in savings to the program. Now, obviously, that's important for the long-term survival of Medicare. Right. But it also meant that those businesses that were strictly relying on those type of transports. I once, I'll tell you, it's kind of funny. I once had a new ambulance service owner call me and say, I'd like you to do my billing. And this is so exciting because I can take four dialysis patients on and have in a year in excess of, seven figures worth of income from just four or five of these patients. I can't wait to get going. When can you start for me? And I'm like, whoa. Yes, stop.
0: breaks, breaks please. Even,
1: yes, even in the day Gary before we had this program, you just knew that something didn't smell right.
0: Yeah, right. exactly. You
1: know, and of course, we all know the horror stories and the the Fox Channel down in uh, Philadelphia suburb that followed the ambulance around and saw six people get out of an ambulance, yep. walk into the dialysis center, picked them up again, stop for sandwiches at the hoagie store. I guess they call them subs down there or heroes. I don't know whatever that is. And then proceeded to submit a claim for each of those patients. You know, like it it was off the charts. There's no doubt about it. But Um, year one totally was just off the charts. By year two, um, the savings had, it had dialed back, the hit, and everybody kind of got used to it. Um, In the assessment, there was also no evidence, this is the government talking, I think there's some debate to this, but that there was no adverse impact on the quality or access to care for beneficiaries with ESRD or pressure ulcers. There were some limited studies that were done outside the government that showed that there was a few deaths attributable, quote unquote, there were some lawsuits against the government uh, that were pressed. But by and large, I have to say that the government makes a good case that there was a lot of funny stuff going on, I'm afraid to say. Um, the number of RSNAT suppliers per 1,000 in year one states decreased by about half, half. So I'm, the reason I'm cautioning about this is, if you're operating in a state and you're doing these runs, and you know, first of all, if you're a QMC client, we're very close to the hip with compliance. So we've already, you know, probably sounded the warning alarm and said, hey guys, like, you, you, or we've just flat out refused to bill some of these trips because they're not medically necessary. And sometimes we get some stress about that, but it's the right thing to do. But if you're relying on that or you're listening here, maybe you're not part of the QMC network yet and you're doing these, you need to be prepared because there's gonna be a hit to your business line, whether it be appropriate or not, it's gonna happen. Okay, especially in those areas with the Macs that have not yet delved into this. Now obviously they're gonna talk with their counterparts in the other Macs where this has been the demonstration, but until they get up and running, you're gonna see some, you're gonna see some hiccups, that's for sure. Um, And I will tell you that the claims denial rate rose immediately upon implementation, Uh, but within eight quarters, in eight quarters in year one, it decreased back to more of a baseline rate. So they didn't get it right to start. Of course, now they do have other MACs that will give guidance. And you know, we may even see, Gary, some MACs that are able to bid on areas where this isn't happening, and they'll be able to win bids for more territory, because that is a competitively bid process based on their success with running this prior auth program. Okay, so uh, it's coming, guys. We knew it was coming. We were ready for it. We don't know when yet. There's been no announcement on the date when it will expand nationwide. My guess will be is there's probably going to be a delay due to coronavirus, but by 2021 Q1, I would fully expect it, if not before. Um, you know, We are in election year two, so that may just be delaying things a little bit, but this is, it's its done, it's approved, it's coming. CMS has made their case to Congress that this program does not adversely affect the patient population and they've been given the green light to move forward. So um, let's prepare. Um, I know our people are ready. QMC is ready. We've been dealing with this for quite some time. No stress here. Um, the only stress will be is if some of the MACs don't quite get the processes right and we've got to deal with some heartburn on that but um, um, it's coming.
0: Absolutely. Thanks Chuck. Again, encourage questions. Feel free to ask. Um, I do have uh, one question that was submitted. We're going to save that till the end from our colleague in New Hampshire. But Chuck, uh, speaking of 2021 as you just did, uh, let's roll up to three, uh, two letters and one, one number, ET3. Yep et 2021 um, man we've blown through 2020 here huh yeah. and, yes uh,
1: and, and this is not et phone home it is no. three so
0: you may need and, to phone home
1: yeah but, Gary uh, probably most everybody on this call doesn't know what I'm what we're talking about but uh, yeah so anyhow <laughs> um so the emergency triage treat and transport model um we were just ready to start this, okay? Um, the entities across the country, I believe there were 40 different ones that had been approved for this demonstration program, right. all had received their approvals, they were ready to go, and then coronavirus hit and everything hit the break. So we do know now ET3 is going to start back up in 2021, um, and we're gonna focus on two different things. And the interesting thing about the effect of this pandemic is, it has put the spotlight on everything ET3 was going to demonstrate. So, ET3 was going to demonstrate two things test the savings to the system potential and the cut of the overutilization of certain services, such as ED, overcrowded, and overutilization, by two ways. <clears throat> Testing the ability to get paid for when transporting to an alternative destination and testing treatment in place, meaning telehealth, okay? Now, oddly as it was, suddenly we've got a baptism in all things of both. We've tested the ability to transport people to other than hospitals and skilled nursing facilities, based on the fact that we may be transporting a 911 to a testing site before they go into the ED, We're testing non-emergency transports to segregate populations that were infected or so they're not infected to alternative destinations such as hotels that have been retrofitted, you name it, we've got. And also telehealth, if you read any of the studies, any of the news reports has suddenly just ballooned because I I just did a sleep study. I was borderline, um, prior to losing a couple pounds, uh, I was borderline sleep apnea. And uh, had a problem with snoring that the rest of my family, much to their chagrin, uh, threw things at me in the middle of the night. Okay, so I did a telehealth visit with the sleep study um, uh, PA. Uh, It was very successful, very convenient, I must say as well, because I didn't have to leave work for my appointment, which was mid-morning and go there and, you know, wait in the waiting room. I was able to dial in and did the assessment right online. So we're going to see this uh, ratchet back up in all indications in any of the EMS-related articles that I read on this subject. I can tell you that we are fully anticipating that this is going to be, I just um, took in a really great uh, presentation for some con ed. Um, that was given by our state medical director here, Doug Kupas, who is my medical director here in in my home system. And uh, Doug does a great um, uh, study uh, presentation on his insights. He calls it 2040. He's been in EMS for 40 years. So he calls it his 2040 look into what's coming and what's been in EMS. And he just did a great presentation a few nights ago that I thought was just wonderful. Um, regarding um, what he sees coming. And he has been in the forefront of pushing, uh, in our local area, a really good uh, mobile integrated healthcare system that is partnering with our health system here um, in telehealth. And it's been extremely, extremely successful. And also treatment in place. So a number of you out there are already uh, experimenting with this. Uh, You're doing treatment in place uh, situations, even though you're not getting reimbursed. Uh, The point that we're all trying to make, and that this demonstration study as it moves forward, and I think the recent history from the pandemic is going to pound home, is that yes, Medicare, you can pay us if we don't transport, and that's probably a good thing. It'll save Medicare money. It'll provide some dollars into something that EMS right now in the field is not getting paid for, and it's going to be very patient friendly. Uh, so I think uh, look for this to really even prior to this, we were excited about what it was going to show. The study it is a five-year uh, study. Um, I'll be interested to see if they don't shorten that. We don't have any indication of that right now, but but um, I think for low acuity nine one one. Um, for relieving pressure on the ERs, uh, I know we have one client in New England that's doing a very successful sending out a uh, mental health um, practitioner that evaluates all overdose cases. So we're not taking overdose patients to an ER; they're taking them right to a treatment facility if if they um, if they give their permission. And uh, again, providing person-centered care. We're going to test. We're going to test encouraging appropriate utilization of services and uh, we're going to increase inf- efficiency in EMS and Lord knows what the cost of EMS today, we need to be as efficient as we can be. So I'm looking forward to that. That is one of the things I am looking forward to. We're geared up here for ET3 and how we're going to assist our clients in billing for that and monitoring and running metrics on that. Um, and, and I think it's going to be just a, a, a really, Exciting period in EMS. I look at this, Gary, as back in the mid '70s when when um, uh, we started with modern EMS and paramedic paramedicine. I think this is the next great jump off that we're going to see, and we're going to see EMS recreate itself in that manner. Great.
0: Chuck. Just a question for our listeners: um, I wonder how many of them out there today have actually transported over the last six months with COVID in place to an alternative destination? If you if you have. I'd just like to see, raise your your electronic hand at the bottom of your screen, something for us to take a look at here. That's a great question. Don't see many hands, don't see any hands going up, but, uh, oh, there we got a couple. So good, okay, I think that number is gonna grow over time, at least that's what we anticipate, so thank you.
1: Okay, next thing we're gonna talk about is um, right now being debated in the Senate. And, and I was hope, the indication was that I was gonna be able to tell you that remember back when all of you back in March were given the opportunity to apply for and receive advanced Medicare dollar payments. So they took your history and they gave you a certain dollar amount and it was a loan, okay? It was true loan to be offset 121 days After receiving the dollar. So you basically got several months worth of Medicare dollars in anticipation based on your billing history. And then as you got paid on new claims, 120 days out, those payments would be offset. Now that was great when you got it. We're about in that we've probably some of you already started that 120 day period 121 after. Um, But that means now you're going to take a revenue hit because your Medicare dollars that you used to flowing is going to be offset until you match what you were given, and then it'll start up back again. About a week to 10 days ago, the American Ambulance Association was very optimistic that as part of H.R. 8337, passed in the House by an overwhelming majority, 359 to fifty seven. We don't see that happen too much in today's Congress. Definitely not passed to and and the reason is is because government funding is going to stop on thursday if we don't get a stopgap measure and this is called a continuing resolution we've seen this over the years government has to reappropriate funds for the government to stay in operation it moved to the senate the AAA requested that there be a caveat uh, also the american hospital association the association of american medical colleges uh all lobbied hard for delaying that repayment. And most of it for A and B was provide um, a one year before offset of claims. So extend that 121 to 365 days, limit the offset to not more than 25% of a payment of a future claim. So you still got a trickle of dollars, 75% of your normal approval, and you offset 25% until you match that bank. Um, limit the offset to not more than 50% over the next six months because we're still in the throes of some pretty heavy coronavirus um, uh, uh, spikes. And then also provide for up to 29 months from the date the advance payments were received before requiring that outstanding balance be paid in full. And that would be potentially for someone whose volume has gone down. (laughs) Well, excuse me whose volume has gone down, and now you don't have enough incoming claims to offset that. And that can happen in some smaller areas. And then if you haven't paid by the end of that 29th month period to limit the percent of interest that the government could charge to a, a meager 4%, um, we had hoped that provision would ride on 8337. I can tell you that 8337, is still being debated on the Senate floor. Uh, the Senate was going to dismiss and go home to try to do some electioneering. That's been put on hold, so they're still discussing because come Thursday, there's gonna be no funds to run the government. The government's gonna do a shutdown. Uh, we also don't know because there's so much um, debate going on and so much give and take and so much negotiation about the riders on the, this bill as to whether or not when it does pass, it will have those provisions in it. So I was optimistic as of our rollout on our bulletin we sent out, that I was gonna be tell you, here's the, be able to tell you, here are the steps you're gonna be able to take to offset that immediate offset. Unfortunately, I can't tell you that because Congress is still debating that. So stay tuned. If we get some information, Gary, we'll send out a bulletin um, uh, amongst our network so keep an eye on that. And then the final thing before we open up for just general Q and A um, is the president, just a few days ago, um, actually the end of last week, announced what he calls his America first health plan initiative. So he's laid the gauntlet down prior to election and I'm not gonna quote politics here, so don't get me started. Um, My degree's in political science, so I could spend the whole time on that alone, but um, he, in his attempt to say, look, Congress, if you don't deal with some of this stuff, I'm going to by executive order, and calling out healthcare initiatives, of course, and a lot related to the pandemic, okay, he has called out surprise billing. Now, this particular president has been very keen on surprise billing as it relates to patients and what he feels is an over uh, burden on patients. Again, I'm not debating that factor. He has made a point to state that he does not believe that surprise billing should be allowed. Now, he has not made any direct reference, nor has any administration communication, excuse me, made a direct reference to EMS or ambulance. He has made a direct reference, however, directly to hospitals. And as hospitals are concerned, he has also made a carve out communication in this um, missive about going to an ER and then be charged for services not provided by that facility. So again, surprise billing, where afterwards you get you know, the person who reads your scan, you get that bill and they're not in network, so you get a surprise bill. Um, obviously, we all know this could apply to pre-hospital transportation, especially to the air medical side of our business, because that balance billing seems to be more in um, under the microscope than what ground transportation is. But ground transportation is also included. So he says, and I quote, uh, that, and this comes directly from the president, We have also taken some concrete steps to eliminate surprise out-of-network bills. For example, on April 10th, my administration required providers to certify as a condition of receiving supplemental COVID-19 funding that they would not seek to collect out-of-pocket expenses from a patient for treatment related to COVID-19 in an amount greater than what the patient would have otherwise been required to pay for care by a network provider. I could almost recite that verbatim if I if I close my eyes, because that was something we educated you all about applying for the various programs and you had to sign that attestation statement. So given that, we're gonna watch this very closely. If the president is successful in his reelection attempt, then this could happen sooner or later. Will it affect the EMS community? remains to be seen. Nothing directly speaks to that right now. However, if you're EMS and tied to a hospital system, I think there is more air ambulance system uh, that's tied, and many of them are air ambulances, as you know, Gary, tied to hospital systems. I think there could be the potential for that to be included under that umbrella. Standalone EMS remains to be seen. Uh, this is the time where you need to be talking with your, especially in election year, with your... Uh, representatives, even speaking your um, piece to the political parties that are now roto dialing you on a regular basis that you oops and you pick up and you actually talk to one of those people. Um, You need to be having your discussions. You need to be supporting organizations, your statewide associations, the American Ambulance Association. Um, You know, I know a a number of these organizations have lobbied uh, and made their voices known um, please get behind these initiatives um, if you have a strong opinion about such. Because if you are involved in that practice, um, my question is, and has been from day one, and I've done, we've done uh, discussions on this in our Excuse My Medic podcast, Gary, about where is the funding going to come to make up for the shortfall if we're not allowed it. to balance bill? Yep. And I get it. I, I, you know, I've been a patient who's gotten a surprise bill, And I don't like it, and I grumble and probably say a few expletives along the way. But I also understand that where's the money going to come from to fund air medical? There have been some studies that says air medical in our country, which is the best in the world, will take a serious hit if balance billing is not allowed. So it concerns me because I know we have fabulous air medical programs in um, in my own backyard, in your backyard, Gary. Uh, right here in Pennsylvania, we have some of the best. You know, I hate to see that impacted. So now's the time to speak out. Like they say in weddings, forever hold your peace. But the president has made it known this is one of his key pet project initiatives and we'll see more if he's reelected. If he's not, then we may see a hold until the new administration gets its footing. But you can rest assured that everything we have read and saw within the past few years is pointing to this practice being severely scrutinized if if nothing more, it goes to an arbitration, and then that could have an impact. So stay tuned. I wanted to just throw that in there for what it's worth, because it is you know right now a hot topic. In addition to H.R. eighty three thirty seven, and um, the f- next few days, months, weeks leading up to the election could be very telling about what we're going to see in funding moving ahead uh, in the new year. And uh, also, Gary, I didn't even get in this, and I won't. Um, we anticipate. Very soon, we'll see what the inflation factor is. The AAA has put out their um, kind of look-see based on uh, what the metrics are right now and inflation. Doesn't look like we're going to get much in the way of Medicare money. Probably less than 1%. Yeah. We're hoping that it remains positive. It looks like it will, uh, but um, that's... and So don't look for a big bump in Medicare dollars either. Uh, and that's another subject that we really don't have time to get into Absolutely. today. Absolutely.
0: Chuck, thanks, um, covered a lot of ground today. I appreciate the time that you put into this. And I uh, do have one question that came in uh, while you were speaking. I think this reverts back to the CARES uh, stimulus. It says, we anticipate that many of our expenses will be reimbursed from FEMA disaster funds. So much of that will not be listed on the expense side of the equation. I have also anticipated that most of the, our CARES Act revenue will go towards this. Do you see any particular issues with this? Good question.
1: Yeah, Chris, um, Chris. that is a great question, Chris. Thank you. Um, Chris, um, I think as long as it's not in your hands now, you don't need to be concerned about it. Um, And I also think that's why if when future funding comes, why there's a second round of reporting that may invoke next year based on it. Right now the guidance is if you spend it all It's based on what you have in your hand right now, and you you really don't need to be concerned because you haven't double-dipped because you don't have that FEMA disaster fund yet. Next year, if you get more money and then you get the FEMA disaster fund, then you'll have to watch how that
0: overrides.
1: I think for right now, you're you're in the clear. Um, But that second round of reporting will invoke next year, and I think that's where you'll see that come if that's the case.
0: Chuck, another question from Melissa. Thanks again, Melissa. Are insurances, I'm taking, she's referring to payers, required, all caps there, required, to pay in-network for emergencies?
1: Um, It's state by state, it's state by state. In most cases, I would say yes, but, and and I can't, for the life of me, and uh, I know I would have to actually ping one of our great operations people to remember, what state's possible, this is not the case in, Uh, but, but it is state by state specific. So the answer is most yes. I don't think it's all and required is a heavy lifted word. I'd say required based on the parameters in the state law that governs that. That's a large answer for a small question, but I'm being very careful because Blanket answers in this case it varies by different state regulations.
0: Don't want to get you into trouble by any means. Correct. List. So other questions. Okay, seeing none. Chuck, thank you once again for a form- informative session. Thanks for to all of you who joined us. We try to get this word out as best we can. Uh, Surely, anytime you do have questions, never hesitate in writing us, picking up the phone, giving us a call. Client services at quickmedclaims.com with your questions, uh, or you can always call us at 1-800-901-1155. Again, just throwing out that we offer these from time to time, we encourage you to participate. Uh, Some of the stuff is not all that exciting folks, but it is very, very important. And don't take any of this lightly, pay close attention. There's things happening all around us, and if you fall short uh, you, most cases have nobody to blame but yourself. So keep your, keep your ear to the ground on these things because they do sneak up on you. And, and that's the reason we try to bring them to you uh, as often as we can. So with that, I will thank everybody for attending. And Chuck, thanks to you. Thank you. Wish all of you a great day. And hey, be, be safe, safe out there.